Today in the garage, we have Michelle Johal and Harpreet Saini. Michelle Johal started her career at a national labor law firm and practiced in that area for a short period of time. In 2005, she began practicing criminal law with a senior member of the criminal bar. During her tenure at the firm, she appeared at all levels of court in Ontario. In 2011, Michelle left the firm to start her own practice that expands throughout the greater Toronto area, representing clients charged with a variety of criminal offenses. The bulk of her practice consists of the representation of clients charged with criminal driving-related offenses, domestic assault, and youth cases. In 2019, Michelle became an instructor as part of the trial advocacy at Osgoode Hall Law School. Michelle has been a panelist at multiple continuing legal education programs on various topics, including the Law Society of Ontario, the Criminal Lawyers Association, the Ontario Bar Association, and the National Judicial Institute. Harpreet Saini is an experienced criminal defense lawyer practicing in the Greater Toronto Area. Harpreet has appeared at all levels of court in Ontario, and he acts for people charged with crimes of violence, drug offenses, sexual offenses, and other types of offenses in the criminal code. Harpreet has developed a significant Twitter following at Saini Law, where he devotes a lot of time assisting with answering questions posed to him by junior members of the bar, as well as sharing humorous personal anecdotes. In today's garage, Michelle and Harpreet discuss the future of a centralized Toronto courthouse, the pivots in the practice of criminal law during the pandemic, and provide some advice about raising children while practicing criminal defense. Whether you're driving your Honda Shadow, picking on your washburn, or prepping submissions. Step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Michelle, Harpreet, thank you both for joining me here in the garage today. It's my pleasure to be here, Marco. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for having me. I understand that both of you have some familiarity with um, now Justice Cooper's uh, Garage Series, which he would host uh, when he was counsel. Can you tell us anything about those experiences? So I I remember the first one I went to was several years ago. Don't remember how many years ago. Uh, I was relatively junior, had a great time. It was very educational. Uh, afterwards, there were a bunch of us meandering about outside. We are going to go somewhere, try and get some food, whatever the case may be. And one of the speakers, we ran into them. Uh, it was uh, Justice And uh, he's walking around. He, we see him. We say, hey, how you doing? Thank you for the talk. It was really good. Uh, he's very polite, politely says, thank you. Hello, how are you? And of course, I, uh, as I will, I pressure him into, uh, try and pressure him into joining us uh, for, uh, for some jerk chicken late at night. Uh, Maybe I pressured him a little bit too much. I'm sure he's used to, uh, when he was a professor, uh, he's used to having students saying, hey, let's hang out. Uh, but he was very polite in declining us. So that's that's my first memory of the Garage series, uh, applying peer pressure to a judge. It works sometimes. You might get a result that you want on the road. Maybe. <laughs> Michelle? I recall attending the Garage series uh, in person at least 10 plus years ago. Uh, I recall it was at uh, the now infamous St. Mike's uh, High School. Uh, at the time, I was a fairly junior lawyer. I liked that it was free. Uh, I liked that after the event, there was food. And I especially liked the social aspect and the opportunity to interact with other uh, senior counsel, um, as I said now, in person. I understand that the goal of the Garage Series was to get lawyers to come out and talk and uh, express uh, some knowledge over various legal issues and topics. Um, how it evolved into the podcast was strictly due to the pandemic because um, obviously uh, Justice Cooper could not uh, host those over the course of 2020. So he switched it to a podcast and during season one, he covered many of the legal issues. So for season two, we're just basically trying to get back to the fun parts of our jobs, which is talking to our colleagues when we see each other around. And because we haven't seen each other around, I'm really happy that uh, both of you were able to come in and have these discussions with us. I want to start by asking, um, as both of you are uh, senior to me, at, at least at the bar, I was just wondering how you got your start in criminal law, Michelle? You know what? For me, starting as a criminal lawyer, it was a happy accident. I actually articled and worked as a labor and employment lawyer before I started uh, working as a criminal lawyer. And I can tell you that um, I'm happy that I had that experience. Um, as a labor and employment lawyer, I had zero litigation experience. Uh, I recall attending an examination for discovery on one occasion, but never did I see the inside uh, of a courtroom. 
Uh, as it turns out, in 2005, uh, a law firm by the name of Barry Fox and Associates uh, was hiring uh, a junior criminal defense lawyer. Um, at the time, um, Barry Fox's office was located at 1911 Eglinton Avenue East. That is the same address as the Scarborough Courthouse. It's a lovely building. I think we can, <laughs> we can all agree. Uh, it's situated uh, right next to the Dolphin Bingo Hall. Um, and at the time, there was the Dolphin Bingo Hall, um, although I, I recall it had a different name at the time. It was a, a, a bar. And then next door was the legal aid office. Then it was our office and then the courthouse. So uh, I can tell you that um, uh, I applied uh, to that position. And I feel very happy that I got the opportunity to work there because it was certainly uh, a very busy high volume practice. And that's where I got my start. And I feel so grateful that, uh, that I got the opportunity to work there. And I can tell you from the very first day that I started working, I saw the inside of a courthouse, which was something that I did not have an opportunity to do, um, when I was articling on Bay street or when I was, uh, um, employed as a civil lawyer. How did you feel the first time you went into that courthouse and had to address a court? You know, it was overwhelming. I think you may recall uh, at the time, the Scarborough Courthouse was a very busy place, uh, unlike today. Uh, there were, the hallways were lined, obviously, with defendants and their families, uh, with police officers in uniforms. And you may recall that there were uh, a large number of Crown attorneys that were running down the hallways with, um, uh, back in the day before the electronic disclosure hub, uh, they had physical briefs and they would be piled high. And it was a really uh, busy place. I recall that I would regularly appear uh, in uh, 407 court, which was the set date court, and it was bursting at the seams. You know, the uh, the walls were lined with lawyers. Obviously, all the seats were taken. And uh, it was the same for virtually every courtroom uh, in that building. It was a, a really busy place. And uh, I, I liked uh, that pace. Uh, I really enjoyed it. What about you, Harpreet? How'd you get your start? So coming out of law school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I put together all my articling applications to basically everywhere because I had no clue. I didn't do OCIs. I didn't summer in anywhere. None of that. So I sent out all these applications and I got a grand total of one interview. So when you only have one interview, you prep the hell out of that one interview. So I prepped for my one articling interview at the office of Hicks Adams back then, Hicks Block Adams. Uh, Marco knows it very well. And uh, I go there, I sit down, and of course, you know, when you prep for your interview, you you, you, th you think up of a, a list of questions to ask, because they always ask you, do you have any questions? And if you say no, you look stupid. So I sit there, and I sit down for my interview, ready to go. These guys, they just tell me about the firm, they're explaining everything to me, and throughout the course of them explaining, one by one, in my head, all I'm thinking is they're ticking off all the questions that I had prepared. And by the end of it, I wasn't even listening to them anymore. I was just trying to think of a question to ask them. I had a question. So before I went in, I went on to QuickLaw. I threw in one of their names just to see what would come up. And I had a case of the, one of theirs. So when they asked me if I have any questions, all you got to say is, so what, what was up with that case? And then I was in because, you know, lawyers, they want to talk about their cases. And they went off for another 20 minutes talking about the case. And that's how I, that's how I got the job. And that's how I got into articling there. Finished my articling. And then uh, we, there were three students. And I was the least of the evils. And that's, that was my start. At that time, I think, were they hiring only one student back every year like that? Uh, well, in the year that... I finished articling. I think that I was their only viable option. Uh, one had left uh, articling, uh, sorry, uh, entirely, and uh, the other uh, went to Ottawa. So by process of elimination, you end up with Harpreet Sani, which is fine by me, default. So when you think back to those early days of, of practice as a lawyer, Harpreet, what is there anything that makes you nostalgic about that time period in your life? Or Yeah, it was a... I mean, it's in the past. I wouldn't go back to it. But in the time, it was great. Uh, there were a whole bunch of us. You were there. There were, We had this whole cohort of people of relatively speaking similar year of call. And we would hang out. It was There's a lot of camaraderie. Uh, we'd go next door to the local bar. Uh, Friday nights, we'd go to a different bar. 
uh, nachos. I would drink my tea. You guys would get plastered on occasion. It was a, we were all class acts. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of nostalgia there, but that's part of the nostalgia of youth in general, right? Well, I remember um, that we were all pretty much, I would say, probably between the age of 25 and 35. And at that time, we were all single too when I first started working there. Yeah. And so we hung out socially a lot and you really felt like you were part of like a TV show law firm because we were there at nights, we were there on the weekends. Yeah, we had and, nothing else to do at that time. And we just focused on our cases and chatted about uh, criminal law. And obviously, I think I met Michelle at one of the Hicks Adams famous Christmas parties. Is that right? Uh, was it a Christmas? Oh, you're right. It was the Christmas party. So I was a regular fixture at those parties um, uh, until I got pregnant with my first child. <laughs> uh, but I do, uh, I do recall attending uh, those parties every year, and uh, they were famous for their oysters. Yeah, they had the oyster <laughs> bar. I mean, one one year, I think the I think the fire trucks had to show up. But um, Michelle, when you think back to those early days of your practice, though, besides the Christmas party, what comes to mind? To be honest, chaos and adrenaline. Um, I just remember that uh, my practice, obviously, it was a high volume practice. I was an associate. And uh, to be candid, it's very different than the pace uh, of my practice today. Um, as I indicated, I, I started my career at the Scarborough Courthouse, and I recall being paged into virtually all the courtrooms simultaneously. I, re I recall I would have matters in 407, which is their set date court. 406, which is their, I guess, their resolution or guilty plea court, um, a trial court, um, a bail court, which is 412. And trying to get all to all of those courtrooms simultaneously, obviously, was always a challenge. And I recall hearing my name being paged in the hallways regularly. And then uh, attending in, you know, respective courtrooms late, uh, especially in a trial court. And the judges were were never particularly impressed with me. But the reality is that, that those were the demands of a busy practice at the time trying to be in 10 places at once. I was fortunate that at least I wasn't uh, required to drive around the province. I know that um, my partner in life also worked at Hicks Adams. And so while I was confined to just the one courthouse, I recall he'd have to drive downtown and he lived in Markham at the time. He'd have to drive to Coburg and you guys would have to take a tour of uh, the province of Ontario. So I still think at the same time, I was uh, very fortunate that at least while there certainly were a lot of demands. Um, at least I just had one home base where I had to attend on a uh, regular basis. You didn't know the joys of going to the lovely courthouse in Bancroft in November, for example. No, I didn't. I didn't. It's special. <laughs> I can only imagine. I do recall that for whatever reason, regularly, uh, Hicks students had to go to Coburg. I don't know why that was. What was the line uh, at the meeting when uh, when we had to go to one of those out of town courts? Coburg uh, is lovely this time of year. It's, lo <laughs> oh, it's, it's lovely this time of year. Yeah, and that was the ongoing joke by uh, I think each of the partners when they would send us out on those uh, on those missions. It invariably was not lovely. But. Well, actually, <laughs> uh, you know, Coburg, if I remember, because I'd been there uh, once or twice when I was at Hicks Adams, it had this really old courthouse. It did, yeah. and and if I remember, um, the the court was with like a, a pit and then it had like a bleacher seat, not bleacher seats, but you kind of felt like you were down and the judge was on a dais and then the gallery was like elevated, if I'm not mistaken. It was like one of those antique uh, courthouse buildings where it reminded you of uh, like To Kill a Mockingbird, where if there was a big trial, the public could sit above the lawyers and watch what was happening. Did you ever been to a Peterborough Superior Court? No. I think it's Peterborough, so... The Superior Court, not the OCJ. It's like on a hill. It's some old-timey building. And when you're in the main courtroom there, I don't know how many courtrooms they have, they have a like a pedestal and like a stairwell that goes up to the roof. It's not a gallows and because I asked, but it looks like a gallows. It's the creepiest thing I've ever seen in a courtroom. I haven't been to some of these um, out of Toronto or... Ontario, like suburban Ontario courts too much, but I remember uh, going to Bracebridge for a week. And um, that's another one of those courthouses that makes you feel like you're uh, in back in time. Yeah. Bracebridge well, is lovely this time of year. Yeah, you know, for sure. 
Orangeville too, actually. Orangeville has a nice courthouse. I mean, am I right, Michelle? No, Orangeville has a beautiful courthouse on Louisa. It's uh, it's very nice. Interestingly, also Kingston, Ontario has one of the most beautiful courthouses in the province. So. Well, the aesthetics make up for the results, I guess, <laughs> in those jurisdictions. Compared to the uh, strip mall that is Scarborough. It's funny because people who have come in from out of town um, to be guests on this podcast have seen 1000 Finch, have seen 1911 Eglinton, and are shocked. They're actually shocked that Toronto has courthouses like that. Well, they can't all be Old City Hall or even College Park. They have their own individual charms. I mean, uh, we're looking forward to having the new uh, courthouse downtown. Are, are you looking forward to that, Michelle? I am. Honestly, the, the plaza at 1911, because like the Dolphin Bingo Hall obviously is up and running now. And I can tell you, I uh, attended at my satellite office there recently, and it's completely full, the parking lot. And uh, Smoker's Alley, uh, all the smokers are, are still there. And it's just, uh, it's inundated with the patrons of Dolphin Bingo. So I think it's time to go. It's time to to move forward. And from what I've seen, I've seen some photos of the new courthouse. It, it looks beautiful. So I'm looking forward to leaving 1911 behind. I promise you, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> why do you say that, Arpri? It's going to be a beautiful disaster. And I'll tell you why. You have You have a hard enough time getting a witness or your client to North York when they live in North York. How in the hell are you think, do you think someone who lives in Scarborough, who couldn't, can't get to Scarborough Court, is going to be able to get their way all the way downtown to the downtown core? It's going to be a disaster for accused to get there. It's going to be a disaster for witnesses to get there. It's going to be a disaster all around. Uh, I expect that there'll be a lot of, it, it's going to be damaging to a lot of pra- individual practices as well. For example, you have certain lawyers who focus more on one courthouse, it's going to be difficult for them to transition. And they're going to be able to do that, I hope, for, for their sakes. But th- that's a transition they're going to have to make. But the sheer logistics of it all is going to be disastrous. There's the one subway station, uh, Osgood on the south. What's on the north? St. Patrick? That's right. St. Patrick. Can you imagine the madhouse that those two stations are going to be at, say, at around 9.30 in the morning? on a Monday morning. It's going to be a disaster, is my prediction. Well, let me just go to Michelle because having worked out of a Scarborough Courthouse office that's right next to Scarborough Courthouse, I mean, maybe it's time for the business models to change for some of these lawyers who've decided to focus their practice in one smaller jurisdiction. The pandemic has already forced those lawyers to reevaluate that business model. So when I started working um, at 1911 Eglinton Avenue East, because the office was located next to the legal aid office and next to the courthouse, it was an ideal location. And people that would walk in looking for a lawyer was a regular daily occurrence. I can tell you since they introduced case management courts that are available obviously online or on Zoom during the pandemic, obviously there's no foot traffic uh, in the plaza at 1911 anymore. Uh, the only people that frequent that plaza are the people that go there to play bingo, right? So already that business model, um, it's dead, right? And I know there's other courthouses. Um, I don't know about 1000 Finch, but I know at 2201, there was a lawyer's office that was situated right next to the courthouse, uh, very close to the parking lot for the same reason. And I imagine that Obviously, those lawyers will have to uh, come up with a new business model as well. Well, Thousand Finch has the two office buildings right there as well. So. That's right. You're, you're right. But they don't have the same, like we don't necessarily walk in right. to that office knowing that there's lawyers' offices located there. But certainly, it would be very convenient for those practitioners to, to get to court historically when they were required to go in person on a regular basis. So do you think that the Zoom court for the purpose of, let's say, set day court which reduces the number of, of the amount of foot traffic to the courthouse already um, is something that's going to be beneficial, or is it going to be a disaster when we are all in one courthouse, as Harpreet indicates? If they continue to have case management appearances uh, online, which I certainly hope and anticipate they will, that certainly is going to restrict the number of people 
who attend at any particular courthouse, including downtown. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to go to the Brampton uh, courthouse uh, in person since the pandemic, but I understand that Harpreet has. So can I ask you this, Harpreet? So Brampton historically was the busiest courthouse in the country, the largest and busiest jurisdiction in the country. And I can tell you before the shutdown in March of 2020, I recall uh, being at the base of the escalators on the first floor, looking at the line of people um, outside of the courthouse and thinking, how are we ever going to uh, maintain any distance? Um, and then I looked at the escalator and I was reluctant to take it, but the elevator was no better. And then within a matter of days, uh, it was shut down. So Harpreet, what does the Brampton courthouse uh, look like today? You can get parking now, which is very different. We don't have to bring a motion. You do. Or Justice Dernal. <laughs> no. You can get a very you can get a parking spot with relative ease. It's a thing of beauty. And then the, the hallways, it's a ghost town, right? Because you don't have that foot traffic again. You don't have people walking, meandering around the halls, except for the people who have shown up for their trials and, and witnesses and th that auxiliary staff. Uh, you don't have lawyers running to the TC's office or the disclosure hub. None of that. So it's it's very quiet there now. But if that continues when we move to the downtown Toronto provincial courthouse, is it still going to be a disaster in your opinion? Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Why do you say? I think that the transition is going to be difficult uh, for civilians whose job, who's going to have, they're logistically going to have difficulties getting to the courthouse. That's the main thing, right? Uh, if Brampton is one courthouse and it's giant, and but it covers Mississauga and Peel. So it's hard enough for them to get to court, even though it's the same city, right? Because Brampton's transit system, not that great. But in the city, same thing. If you're at Vic Park and Lawrence, uh, now you have to make your way all the way into, uh, into the downtown core. What time are you going to have to leave if you have to take public transit? Now, someone who regularly takes public transit, they're going to be able to answer that question with relative ease, I think. Not me. But it's just going to be difficult from that perspective. Like just just getting people together. How hard is it for crowns to get their witnesses for a trial when it's in the same locality, let alone when people now have to travel? So taking that uh, perspective and then shifting it to, let's say, the defense bar, changing the business model that we were discussing, how is it going to be for young lawyers who, I mean, we started by generating a certain amount of business by being in the courthouse and stuff that students and young lawyers do are, looks like it's shifting to virtual. Um, Michelle. Again, I feel very fortunate that I, I've never really had to depend on the hallways to generate work, but for those who did again, so that business model, just like having an office located adjacent to the courthouse it's dead. And so I can tell you that uh, during the pandemic, I've, I've found that my practice in Peel is is still fairly busy. And the, the one reason that I sort of attribute to that is that there were a large number of uh, young lawyers or new calls who would frequent the hallways of the Brampton Courthouse uh, quite often to solicit work. Um, and that business model is now dead, right? I mean, people like members of the public do not attend at the Brampton Courthouse with the same frequency as they did before. Bail courts are obviously being held, bails are being held remotely. Case management court is being held remotely. There isn't, as Harpreet noted, the same traffic that there was before. So, you know, a client's not going to approach you in the hall the way they would traditionally. And so what, what can we recommend for younger lawyers on how to generate business using a different model? Like what models can we look to? So this is... I get this question a lot from a lot of junior lawyers who they want to break and they ask this question. So I'm going to first say what it was like, which is not helpful to them because it's, as Michelle has pointed out, it's not that way anymore. But back in the day, you go into set date court and you've got your 10 set dates and you do them all in a row, intentionally, you do them all in a row. And the reason you do that is because you have in the body of the court, all these people who still haven't hired a lawyer yet. Right? And they're wondering, what am I supposed to do? So they see you do your 10 set dates, and generally you get what you want. You know, oh, I want it to go over two weeks. And the Crown says, oh, no, that's too late. It should come back in a week. No, no, it should come back in two weeks. And the JP says two weeks. I said, wow, that guy got what he wanted. He wanted two weeks. He got that those two weeks. And then they see you do 10 of them. It's like a restaurant. You walk down the street, you see two restaurants. One's empty, one's jammed. Where do you go? You go to the one that's jammed. All these pe other people are there. 
So then when you step out of the courtroom, invariably someone who has not hired a lawyer yet is going to come up to you and say, hey, can I talk to you about my case? Sure can. Here's my card. That's the way, that's how you used to generate work as an article student or a junior call. It was one, it was a method of generating work for sure. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. Sorry guys. So what you're going to have to do now is find other ways. So for example, you're going to have to be able to use the internet more effectively. Uh, it's going to be crucial that you maintain a good website, for example. Uh, and you're going to have to use social media if possible to get your name out there. Uh, you're going to have to work with each other. You have to look at your cohort who are in different areas of the city and have different uh, referrals. You're going to have to be in contact with them, especially if you have people in law school uh, who are friends and colleagues of yours who are not in criminal law because they're going to get a call from someone uh, and they do real estate and their buddy's going to say, I got picked up on an over 80 impaired. Do you do that? And your buddy's going to say, no, I don't do that. But hey, I went to law school with so-and-so. Give them a call. So these are the things that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to rely more on your networking. You're going to have to rely more on social media. You're going to have to rely more on the internet for, for all that to work. Do you have anything to add, Michelle? I agree with absolutely everything that Harpreet just said. Well, that's a first, uh, Harpreet. Congr <laughs> congratulations. You got that on tape. <laughs> we got it on tape. Go ahead. What I also think is helpful is for uh, young lawyers to perhaps develop a niche. Uh, I'll give you an example. So during the pandemic, um, I've had an opportunity to attend uh, a number of continuing professional development events that were only available via Zoom. And uh, I learned that uh, there's and I should have known this before, but I learned that there is a large number of criminal law practitioners that not only practice criminal law, but practice mental health law. And I can tell you that I'll regularly get uh, calls from clients um, where they perhaps have more complex mental health issues. And I don't know anything about the Ontario Review Board or about the Consent and Capacity Board. And so if you're interested in perhaps going out on your own, if you could develop a niche and then get the word out, you're going to get referrals from lawyers like myself that, that say, you know what, that's just not something I want to touch. It's not something that I know very well. And so I'm going to refer it to another practitioner. And the thing that's fascinating about criminal law is Obviously, I practice criminal law exclusively, as do you, Marco, as do you, Harpreet, but there's so many different types of criminal law. Before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to do a dangerous offender case, and it was the first of my career, and I recognized that that was also a fairly niche area, and I had to, um, obviously, I mean, it's it's highly um, technical. It's really a battle of the experts. You know, you're hearing from expert witnesses that are uh, forensic psychiatrists, and I had to meet with uh, with my expert witness to to really learn that area of law to be able to do it competently. And fortunately, the Crown's application for uh, a dangerous offender designation was dismissed. But I can tell you, when I was conducting it, even with 15 plus years of experience, uh, I was sweating because the stakes were obviously <laughs> extremely high, and it was not an area of law. Uh, that I was well versed in. So I think that if you can choose a particular area like mental health law and then get to get the word out, you're going you're to have lots of lawyers that will then have you on their roster. And also to Harpreet's point about networking with your law school colleagues, it's extremely important. I have, um, from when I was a labor and employment lawyer many years ago, still I'm in touch with those colleagues who regularly will get clients who were terminated for cause who then are facing criminal charges that are typically breach of trust charges. And who do they refer that, that file to? They refer it to me. And so it's important to you know keep in touch with those uh, contacts and to reach out to your friends that are family lawyers. Obviously, people who are family lawyers are going to have uh, clients that are charged with uh, domestic-related offenses. And again, there's another opportunity for a potential referral. So I think that's a that's a great way to um, keep in touch with your your friends from law school, but also to recognize that that's a source of work. Have you ever considered leaving criminal defense, Michelle? Of course I have. Um, and, and you know what? Uh, early in my career, I did it with regular frequency, but this was when I was an associate. Um, but I don't deceive myself into thinking that working as a Crown attorney uh, would be uh, an easy feat. And part of the reason I know that is because uh, my partner in life, after working at Hicks Adams at the time, it was Hicks Block Adams, uh, he uh, was able to secure a position at uh 
at the Ministry of the Attorney General as an assistant crown attorney in Newmarket, and he's been in that role for a number of years. And, and I see that uh, his work is extremely demanding. It's very different than the work that we do, but there is certainly there's bureaucracy, there's office politics. There are times where they want to exercise their discretion and withdraw a charge, and they're not able to because they're told that they don't have the discretion or the power to do that. And of course, they can't uh, pick and choose their cases. So to be candid, since I have my own practice now, and it's fairly busy, uh, and I have the ability, if someone walks through the door, uh, and to be honest now, it's not the literal door. I mean, if I meet someone over Zoom or it's a case that I'm not interested in, I'm happy to send it elsewhere where I would not have that opportunity if I were a Crown Attorney. If, if there's a particular trial that's assigned to you, you, you have to do that trial. And so there, there's certain cases that I don't take now because I have a fairly young family and I know that uh, there's certain cases that I'm just not interested in doing and uh, I choose not to do them. And I think I'm permitted to do that. If a client has a legal aid certificate and you're an associate, you're going to have to do that case. But if someone comes into my office with a legal aid certificate and I know that they're going to be difficult to manage, I have no interest in obviously acting for that person. I'm happy to make the referral and they can go elsewhere. That's, I mean, having that autonomy is a big selling point, I think, um, when you work on your own in criminal defense. What about you, Harpreet? Yeah, if you have a legal aid certificate, you're good to go. Come on over. So I take a different view when it comes to that. The other, having autonomy, <laughs> having autonomy is a double-edged sword. Because uh, you can not work, but then what you quickly learn is that when you're not working, you're not making any money. So if you want to take your weekends off as a sole practitioner, more power to you. But then you start thinking about, geez, I have all this work I need to get done. And if I don't, I won't get paid. So autonomy is good. and But you, you then end up forcing yourself to, to take on the work is, 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 is my view. I, I just end up taking it anyways. I, I'm not going to say no. Uh, I rarely do. Um, but it's just different. So, uh, yeah, Michelle, we're different. But, Harpreet, when you have a trial, for instance, and, um, you know, it's close to home and it collapses at 11.30 in the morning, as a sole practitioner, what do you do? So, uh, because uh, my wife is not going to be listening to this podcast, I expect, I can uh, make a confession that there has been more than one occasion when a truck collapsed at around 11, 1130. And uh, for the day, my kids were either at home with my wife or with my in-laws or with my parents or whatever the case may be. And instead of going home or back to the office, I caught a matinee at the local theater, one o'clock movie, finishes by 3.30, 4, come home, talk about what a hard day I had. And by the end of the day, Crown withdrew the charges at 4.30. No one's the wiser. So that is a definite <laughs> advantage that you do not have if you're a crown. Michelle, do you have a confession of a similar nature? I have to confess, I'm actually pretty disciplined when it comes to my practice. I usually like very, ra very rarely do I take a day off. But I did yesterday. I had a friend that was visiting from out of town. Uh, I met her in Mississauga for some dosa, which is a South Indian uh, delicacy. And, and I have to confess, I felt almost guilty. I felt like I was playing hooky uh, from school. But at the same time, it you was- You enjoyed uh, that dosa though. I love that dosa. Yeah, and you I, have no I, regrets. Uh, I don't have any regrets. But what I've tried to do, and if there's a, a small practice tip I could perhaps impart to um, other lawyers that are contemplating or starting out their own practice, is I, I've tried to sort of mirror the day that my partner has. So obviously it's not set in stone, but I mean, I've always taken a pretty principled approach that I try to start my day at 8.39, whether I'm in, I mean, generally I am in court, but it's quite often case management court, but I try to stay, start my day at nine and end at five. That's a pretty disciplined and impressive uh, response. I mean, I'm more along the Harpreet line, especially if I'm in, you know, my neck of the woods, uh, if I'm by 2201 or something, because I have my friends, they have a pizzeria, I just go there. And I just justify it by talking about my cases to the guy who's making pizza. And then I'm like, see, I'm actually working here. I'm considering or talking through a defense here. Th that's billable time, by the way. Right, because you're talking about a file, right? Yeah, it, it depends who you ask, but maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe not the best billing practice. Um, so tell me about 
when the when the trial does go ahead, Harpreet, do you have any uh, crazy defense stories that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I'd say the craziest defense that I ran was a superior court trial, and I've told this story a couple of times in the past. Uh, it was a um, this is not the funny part, but it was a father on daughter sexual assault historical, which is very ugly. Uh, and the defense was that it never happened. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's not crazy at all. We run that defense all the time. Uh, the further part of the defense was that she's a liar. Again, nothing shocking, right? Uh, the problem is, well, I'll say the good part. So we get to the jury trial, because of course it's a jury trial. And um, I absolutely eviscerated her in cross-examination. She was done. There's no way the jury was going to accept anything she had to say. The problem was with the case was that the Crown had an additional piece of evidence aside from her faulty testimony. And that was the fact that on two occasions, uh, she had gotten pregnant, had the child on both occasions, and the DNA for both children established that the accused was both father and grandfather of the two children. So... That did not work out well for anyone, including myself. But yeah, that's a that's a difficult case to run. That's a very very crazy defense that you have to put forward there, and, and it's almost at the end, what's there left to say? Uh, apparently, DNA is very convincing to juries. Who knew? <laughs> I had no idea. Michelle, do you have a, a crazy defense story that you want to share? I have many crazy defense stories. I've been at this some time now, but uh, I suppose the craziest uh, defense I have, well, it's not the craziest defense I ever ran. It was the craziest defense I was ever asked to run by a client. Uh, the defense was ID. It was a case where uh, my client was charged with attempt murder and the entire altercation was captured on video surveillance. Uh, the clients asked that I advance the defense, uh, but I refused. Uh, my client was an alleged pimp. Uh, and he had stabbed a John in the chest in a seedy motel uh, after the John had refused to pay for services uh, that had been rendered. Uh, I decided that the it wasn't me, uh, aka the shaggy defense, uh, wasn't going to fly. And uh, after the video was played at the prelim, and I was able to identify my client on the video, I told him that uh, I was not going to advance that defense on his behalf, and I was discharged after the preliminary hearing. Uh, But I I have run other defenses that were somewhat uh, unique. I do recall advancing the defense of duress in the context of an impaired driving charge. Uh, My client, uh, she was a female defendant. And uh, after uh, spending the night at at a bar with her partner, her partner had had instructed her to drive them home. Uh, I was able to establish at trial that he had a, a record of convictions for assaulting her. And she felt that she had no option but to do his bidding. Um, it was before Justice John Kerr. I don't know if that judge predates you, Marco, if you ever recall. No, I recall Justice Kerr. <laughs> appearing in front of him. I know that Harpreet certainly had uh, the privilege of uh, appearing before Justice uh, Kerr. And uh, he uh, he bought what I was selling and he acquitted. So He was a very friendly face uh, in uh, Scarborough Court, I would think. Yes, if I recall correctly. I don't know. You have to ask Selma Jaffer. She may disagree with you. <laughs> oh, I'll ask Selma. Um, so let me ask both of you, practicing criminal law um, with young children, how does that work specifically? I think you can cover this one. I, I'm asking because you know I, I recently had a baby girl. Oh, congrats on that. Thank Congratulations, you very, thank Marco. You very I didn't much. know that. Um, so I'm asking for advice and how does it go as they get older and, and you're doing this job? So I do have some advice to impart um, when it comes to raising children. So the first thing I'll say is obviously it is a big bit of a gong show. There's no question. Um, and everything changed uh, after I had children. In fact, I had worked uh, as an associate for a firm prior to having children. And within two years of having my son, it became clear to me that I could no longer continue uh, in that capacity. And so that's when I decided to establish my own practice and go out on my own. Uh, After I had my daughter uh, in 2013, 
uh, with two children, to be honest, it became completely untenable. And then I made a decision to hire uh, a live-in nanny. And, and this is a decision that I'm not ashamed of. I never pretend to be super mom. Um, I think I'm a darn good mother to my children, but the challenge for me was really house management and everything that comes along with raising children. It's not the child rearing part that's difficult. It's the the, the grocery shopping, the cooking, the laundry, uh, you know, everything else that's uh, associated with running a household. And so after I made that decision, uh, and I was able to delegate the house management to someone else. It gave me the opportunity to really focus on my practice and my children and um, really make a go of it. And so if there's any advice that I could impart to younger female lawyers is it may, at the beginning, cost you virtually everything that you're making in terms of uh, income because it's not uh, the price or the cost of childcare, especially if you have uh, a live-in or live-out nanny, obviously, um, is not in, inexpensive, but it, it's worth the investment in the short term uh, to develop your practice. And we don't have a live-in nanny today, but we still have regular help because, again, I, I'm not super mom. I can't do it all on my own. And I have a partner who has a very demanding career as well. And I think that uh, it, it makes our marriage better and it makes for a happier family. That's uh, an amazing piece of advice. and uh, I really appreciate you opening up with that because... I think that there are a lot of people out there who wonder about these decisions and whether or not they are necessarily the right or wrong decisions for them at the time. And I think it's important that um, they know that there are people out there who are making these sacrifices. Because at the end of the day, I mean, we know what criminal defense lawyers make, especially starting out trying to run a practice and legal aid. And it's not as though we're, you know, rich uh, practitioners that can afford these services. These are sacrifices that we're making so that you can have a family, your household's working, and you're not sacrificing your entire career. So it's very difficult to um, justify that. And I think that um, as a mother, especially, you don't want to feel like you're giving up on your children in lieu of your practice or I'm not sure if that's the best way to say it, but that you're absolutely right. But I can tell you this. I recall when my daughter was about a year before um, we hired um, help, my husband was in the midst of a homicide prosecution. He was not emotionally or physically available. And I do recall at the time that my practice dwindled to virtually nothing. And so I, I had to make a decision at that time. Uh, if I was going to continue practicing law, I knew that I couldn't do both. Uh, but the reality is now, I mean, there's lots of flexibility that's been afforded with case management court and everything else. I spend a lot of time with my children. Certainly, I take them to all of their activities in the evening, and I'm always available for them physically, maybe not always emotionally because of the demands of our job. But, but I think that you have to recognize that you cannot do everything, especially as a woman. And what I don't like is that there's a lot of pressure on women to be super mom and to do it all. I don't, I don't think it's physically possible to do it all. And so it's a decision that I made in the short term uh, that really helped my practice in the long term. And I, and I can tell you that I think that my, my children are better and stronger for it, seeing that, that, that their mom has their own identity, that she has a thriving practice and that she works uh, outside of the home as well as in the home. That's a really a well said answer. And I think it's going to be very helpful to some of our listeners. Harpreet. So I'm going to talk to the guys who are listening. It's, it's a new age we live in. And what I encourage, especially the men, the men who are listening to this, do not be the lawyer dad who comes home at six, seven o'clock plays with your kid for five, 10 minutes, and then you work some more and let your partner put your kid to bed. Don't be that guy. There was a time when that type of behavior was acceptable and it was normal, but you don't want to be that person. As hard as it is, it's important to get right in there. So you're doing your work, but even especially as men, 
uh, it's important for us to recognize that you can't just come home, play with the kid for 10 minutes, and that's it. That's your parenting. That is insufficient. You have to get in there and take them to an activity, play with them, spend time with them, pretend you're interested in Paw Patrol. You're not interested in Paw Patrol. You just have to fake it and pretend. They can't tell, right? And you do these things, and then maybe they'll have a fond memory of you or two uh, when eventually they're they're grown-ups, right? Eventually, when they're grown up and they're in therapy, you want them to say to their therapist, I got a million problems, but my dad was not one of them. And if you get that far, you've done all right. The other thing I'll say to the guys, though, is especially if you are employing uh, uh, when you are, when you're employing people, if you're employing female lawyers who have children and you don't have children, cut them some fucking slack, right? Uh, they have to get home. They have to get home and deal with the kids and deal with a million things. This practice of law that we do, it pushes out so many incredible female lawyers because of familial obligations and because of the demands of the practice. There are so many lawyers that we could probably all think of who would have been exceptional, but they were pushed off because of men who did not know better. So for the guys, one, be involved with your kids, and two, be more understanding uh, for the people in your employ who have kids as well. Michelle, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Before the end of their career. Well, yes, because after the end of their career, I don't, <laughs> I don't think you could see them litigate. Good catch, Michelle. Good uh, catch. So before their end of the career, their career, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to watch uh, Marshall Sack uh, in action. I was actually hoping that a guest uh, this season would mention Marshall Sack because I used to see him occasionally at court, be it 361 or Old City Hall, and you hear the legend and he had the look and he had this presence about him. And I always wondered what, what his, what he was like. Um, so if you could share that experience with us. So again, it was just the OCJ. It was courtroom 412. It was a contested bail hearing, but what I recall, and I've had the opportunity to watch a number of great lawyers in action, uh, quite frankly, just because I'm waiting for my matter to be dealt with. Right. So I've had occasion to watch, you know, Eddie Greenspan, Paul Copeland, some of the greats uh, in our profession. But uh, I can tell you, my recollection of watching Marshall Sack in action is that I've never seen uh, a human being exude so much confidence. Uh, he made advocacy uh, look like a real art form. And I recall that obviously when you're, you know, you're calling a surety, you know, you have notes that you would refer to. He didn't refer to any notes. And the way that he just uh, conducted himself in the courtroom uh, was unlike anything I've ever seen. And, and that's something that's difficult uh, to imitate, but certainly, certainly something that I think we all would like to emulate. And I also really appreciated his own sense of style. I mean, at the time, certainly it's much more common to see men wearing their hair, have, keeping their hair long and tying it in a ponytail. Uh, at the time, um, it was not a regular occurrence. And so the fact that he had that ponytail really set him apart uh, from any, everybody else who um, had short hair. And uh, he was really a force. And it was... Uh, it was great that I had the opportunity to watch him in action. And it wasn't anything exceptional. He wasn't addressing a jury. It wasn't a matter that was in the superior court. Uh, but still, I, I feel very privileged to have seen him litigate before the end of his career. But to, sorry, Harpreet, but to the, to the point that it wasn't a jury trial or anything, a bail hearing is an interesting and underrated part of our everyday job. It's a, it's a full hearing. It's a beginning to end. It's got witnesses. It has submissions. It has sometimes cross-examination. It requires preparation. And if you get to see, like, the odds of you having the opportunity to witness Marshall Sack to a bail hearing is probably more rare or rarer than having the opportunity to see him do a jury trial, which you might only get to see a day of or you, you won't necessarily sit there and watch a two-week or a three-week trial. So there's a benefit to that, right? 
Absolutely. And I certainly agree with you that it's a very, very, uh, nobody will quarrel with you that bail is extremely important. And whether or not your client secures bail can often dictate the course of the case. I mean, if they're denied bail quite often, let's face it, the matter is going to resolve. And if they're granted bail, it's going to be a trial. So you're right. The Crown certainly, uh, especially with special bail hearings, invest a lot of resources in, in making sure that the defendant is denied bail. Uh, is there a lawyer, Harpreet, that you wish you had the opportunity to observe? Yes. So uh, a lot of people may or may not know this. I don't know. But uh, Mohandas Gandhi, who you know as you may know as the Mahatma, I don't call him that, uh, before his life as a uh, nationalist figure, uh, he was a lawyer in South Africa. And by all uh, accounts, he was a horrible lawyer. So he's trained in England, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, something like that. He comes to South Africa and he starts practicing as a lawyer there. Uh, he writes about it. And uh, because I came prepared, I brought an excerpt from his autobiography. It's short. Don't worry. That's right, Michelle. I researched. Did you do research? No, you didn't. <laughs> so this is what he writes about coming to a uh, some kind of settlement in some civil case. My joy was boundless. I had learned the true practice of law. I had learned to find out the better side of human nature and to enter men's hearts. I realized that the true function of a lawyer was to unite parties riven asunder. The lesson was so indelibly burnt into me that a large part of my time during the 20 years of my practice as a lawyer was occupied in bringing about private compromises of hundreds of cases. I lost nothing thereby, not even money, certainly not my soul. I think Gandhi was a horrible lawyer. He sounds like a bit of a dump truck. He sounds like me. a dump truck. And I'm imagining him trying to work out a Peel, a, a deal in with the Crown Attorney in Peel in Brampton, trying to enter the hearts of the Crown's <laughs> office. And I, I figured that's not going to go too well. So I'd love to see that. Harpreet Saini and Michelle Johal, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. So it's just something that I've dearly missed throughout the course of this pandemic. Um, before we go, I just wanted to ask if there's anything either of you would like to plug or how we can find you. Info at michellejohall.com. <laughs> uh, www.sani-law.com. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out season one and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwall. The Law Garage is a J-Mike podcast production.